In 2017, Carabo Mokwena went missing after a night out in Johannesburg. When the details of what happened to her became public, it led to a trending hashtag in South Africa, men are trash, reflecting both how Carabo was treated and the gender-based violence within the country. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crimelines. This is the fifth week of the month, which is when I would usually take a week off. As I saw it approaching on my calendar, I decided to try something different this year. I am going to start doing some shorter episodes rather than focusing so much on content that is an hour plus. That'll free up enough time that I can make episodes far enough in advance that breaks won't really be necessary. But by breaks, I mean breaks from releasing content. I can still take a break behind the scenes while putting out weekly content. I also noticed a few months ago that the show was charting well on Apple Podcasts in South Africa, so I decided it was time to cover a case from there. This is the story of Carabo Mokwena. I will have an after show on this one. It'll be up on YouTube. I will post it right after I upload this. There are pictures and there is CCTV footage for us to go over that will help you understand the case better. And while you're over on YouTube watching that and hopefully watching the Lane Bryant after show I posted last week, plus all the other videos with different cases that I have up there. So let's go ahead and get into today's episode. Carabo was from a close-knit family. Some of her friends said she would complain about her father being a little too strict or overprotective, so sometimes she wouldn't tell him every detail of her life, but she did tell her mother and siblings almost everything, particularly one of her sisters. Carabo was a confident and spiritual woman who believed strongly in feminist progress. She was recorded on video as saying, As women, let's work on becoming successful individuals, finding wholeness and fulfillment in our individuality. Carabo had dreams of starting a private nonprofit organization that would focus on child welfare and also helping abused women. She was studying business at the college part-time to help achieve her dreams. In October 2016, 21-year-old Carabo started dating a 27-year-old man, Sandile Manso. Sandile was, from the outside, a success story. He lived in an upscale apartment in Santon, which is an affluent town just 20 minutes north of Johannesburg. Sandile lived there alone, though he did have children. He had two with his wife, who he had been separated from, and one with a former girlfriend who he dated shortly before he started dating Carabo. Sandile drove luxury cars, he lived in a luxury apartment with staffed security, and he always dressed the part of luxury. He had gone to school for graphic design, but now he worked as a Forex trader, Forex being the foreign exchange market. It's currency trading. Everything I know about it, I learned in the first two sentences of the Wikipedia article because after that, my eyes kind of glazed over. 
Sandile didn't just make money as a trader, he made money teaching other people how to become traders themselves. He would charge around 6,000 rand, which is about 400 US dollars per person, for a one-day course. Because Sandile's business relied on him looking successful so he could sell this idea of success to other people, his social media posts were often him flexing his wealth. In one video he posted, he revved the engine of his BMW and said something like, this is what money sounds like. It would later turn out that the engine was how other people's money sounded, because that's what Sandile was spending. It was discovered that Sandile's investment company, Trillion Dollar Legacy, was a fraud. He promised high returns and delivered next to nothing. It wasn't that he was just bad at trading. Sandile wouldn't even trade the money that he was given to invest. He would just spend it. But Carabo knew none of that. She saw a smart, charming, and ambitious business person, and he was caring, too. He showed interest in helping her get her nonprofit off the ground. Carabo soon moved from her parents' place into Sandile's apartment. They hadn't been together that long when they took this step to living together, but they initially seemed very happy. Then the cracks started showing. Sandile would claim Carabo was temperamental, but the reports from Carabo, including photographs of injuries, would indicate that it was Sandile who was having trouble controlling his temper. Carabo told friends that Sandile had pushed her down during an argument once, he had even broken her phone, and hearing this surprised them. Not that they thought Sandile was some saint who never would have done this, but because they didn't see Karabu as someone who would be in an abusive relationship. She didn't seem susceptible to or vulnerable to this type of partner, particularly given her strong views on independence and protecting women. Her friends would have expected that the first time Sandile touched her would be the last time she ever saw him. Yet, they kept reconciling after their arguments, even ones that included violence. And I think if there's a little micro lesson we can all take from this is to not assume that our strong friends are not also vulnerable in other ways and to keep an eye out for that. So five months into their relationship on Karabo's 22nd birthday, which was March 27th, 2017, family and friends tried to reach out to her, wish her a happy birthday, but no one could get in touch with her, and that worried them. Later in the day, Carabo reached out and made contact. She told them that she was in the hospital. Sindili had attacked her, and he had smashed her phone again so she couldn't call anyone. Her mother, Lolo, warned her that things had gone too far and would only continue to escalate. This boyfriend, who Lolo did think was maybe toxic, was actually abusive. He wasn't going to suddenly stop, and she was genuinely and rightfully, it would turn out, in fear 
for her daughter's life. Karabo agreed with her mother and her friends and everyone else that it was time to break things off with Sandile for good. She also agreed with her brother, who told her to go to the police and make a claim of assault against Sandile, which is something she had initially hesitated to do. When Karabo went to the police station, she found out that while she was in the hospital with injuries from the attack, Sandile had gone to the station and laid a claim against her for assault. She was in the hospital being checked over with a black eye and bruises on her legs while Sandile didn't have a mark on him. According to both Karabo's family and an unnamed source within the police department, the police officer Karabo went in and talked to seemed uninterested in the situation. He told her that the police could not spend their time investigating, he said, she said, counterclaims, and that Karabu and Sandile should work it out between them. So while the assault was documented and was technically an open case, it doesn't appear much was done to investigate it. Karabu stayed with friends and family while she recovered and figured out what was next for her. Two weeks after her birthday, Karabu was at a nightclub with some friends when Sandile walked in. Karabu immediately called her mother Lolo from the club, and Lolo told her to just come home, get out of there. But Karabu didn't. She stayed out with her friends, and eventually, as the night progressed, she and Sandile started talking. That led them to rekindling their relationship to some degree and also to the worry of her friends and family. Karabu and Sandili didn't exactly pick up where they left off. It's not like she moved back in with him, but they did go out a few times while she lived home with her parents. On Thursday, April 27th, 2017, a month after the attack on her birthday, Karabu went out to a nightclub with Sandile. She told her mother that she planned to spend the night at Sandile's place, so not to expect her home that night. While at the nightclub, according to witnesses, the two got into a heated argument right there in front of everybody and then left the club together. At some point in the evening, it's not exactly sure when on the timeline, but Lolo did call Karabo to check on her, and Karabo said she couldn't talk. That was the last time Lolo talked to her. The next day on Friday, Karabo didn't come home, and her family couldn't reach her by phone. When her family called Sandile to see what was going on, he said Karabo had gone back to his apartment with him after the club, but left soon after. He had walked her downstairs to catch a cab, and she was, he assumed, heading home from there. Karabu's father, Tabang, talked to Sindile and asked if they could meet up the next day, which was Saturday, if they hadn't heard from Karabu by then, and Sindile said, of course. Karabu's friends took to social media immediately to get the word out that no one had heard from her since the early hours of April 28th. They were asking people to speak up if they had seen her or talked to her. 
but all of the responses the friends got were more friends who were also concerned because they also hadn't heard from her. When Saturday the 29th came, Sandile called Tabeg and said he couldn't meet up with him after all because he was at a funeral a few hours out of town. Now, the day before, Sandile said he could meet up, but now suddenly he wasn't even in town anymore and couldn't. While in hindsight that seems off, since funerals are generally planned events and he would have known he was going, Tabang was just focused on finding Karabu and didn't really think too much about it. The day after Sandile wouldn't meet with Tabang, the family went to Sandile's apartment building. Some of her siblings went. They wanted to have a look around. Sandile wasn't home, and they assumed he was still out of town. But they did speak with someone in security and found out that a housekeeper had found Karabu's ID and passport in the trash on the fourth floor. That was the same floor Sandile lived on. The cleaner had found those items in the trash the day before, so on April 29th, and had turned them in at the security desk. Lolo went to the police with this information about the ID and the passport being found in Sandili's apartment building and Karabu being last seen there. So that same day, so again, we're still on the Sunday, the police went with Lolo back to the apartment building. Though Sandile was not there yet for the police to talk to, they did ask at the security desk if they could see the CCTV footage from the night Carabo supposedly left the building and got into a taxi. Maybe there was some information that would help them know where to look next. The footage showed that Carabo and Sandile had arrived around 2.40 in the morning. The police watched through for the rest of the night into the next day for Carabo to come out, go down in the elevator, and leave the building, like Sandile said. The elevators and the landings outside of each of them had high-quality cameras pointed at them, but Carabo never appeared on camera again. Sandile, however, did. Now, some of the footage has been released, And some of the parts that have been edited out from what's been released have been reported on, so we have a pretty good sense of Sandile's movements. I am going to show the footage on the After Show on YouTube, but like we have to do each week on an audio-only podcast, we're going to have to rely on my descriptive powers. According to reports, the next time Sandile came out of his apartment, after going in with Carabo, He was carrying a heavy black bag. The neighbor asked him if he needed help, and he said no. In the clips available online, we can see Sandile getting a trash can on wheels from the area where they're kept and rolling it through the doors to the hallway leading to his apartment. This was around 10 at night on Friday night, a good 19 hours after Carabo had arrived at his apartment with him. Ten minutes later, Sandile comes out from the hallway, dragging the bin to the elevator. 
He then went down to the parking garage. 18 minutes later, Sandile went back up, dragging the wheelie bin again, although this time it looks a lot more maneuverable, almost as though it now weighs less. Sandile then is seen taking the trash bin back up to the fourth floor and putting it back where it belongs. Then he went into the hallway leading to his apartment and came out a minute later getting back on the elevator going down. At around 10.30, Sandile left the parking garage. He returned around midnight and went back to his apartment. At 12.35 a.m., he left the apartment again. He is seen wearing what appear to be latex gloves, and he's carrying a small trash bag. We're talking kitchen garbage bag size. He walked into the area where we know the wheelie bins were kept, and when he walked back out, he was no longer carrying the bag. All of this looks very suspicious, of course, so when Sandile arrived, At the building at 9.30 p.m. that Sunday, the police immediately asked if they could ask him a few questions. He was completely cooperative and denied knowing where Karabu was. He suggested that maybe she left, left the country for London, something she had said she really wanted to do. However, the police already know Karabu hadn't left the country because her passport was left behind, not even left behind. It had been thrown in the trash in Sandili's apartment building on the same floor he lived in, in the same area where he was seen throwing away a bag. It's almost like someone wanted to make it look like Carabo had possibly left the country by hiding the passport. The police then asked Sandile if they could search his apartment, and he said yes. He led them up to the fourth floor, and almost immediately on entering, they noticed that the carpet was damp. Sandile said that was because he had it cleaned because he was planning to sell the apartment. A potential buyer was coming through, and he wanted the place to look nice. But near a window, an officer saw that there was a small throw rug on the ground. When that was moved, there was visible blood on the floor. Sandile was then detained and brought to the station for a more formal interview. During this interrogation, Sandile was confronted with the CCTV footage. How exactly was he going to explain this away? Carabo went into his apartment and never came out. The only person who came out was Sandile, and he was dragging a large trash can with him. Looking at this footage, what option did he have? Sandile sort of confessed. It was a Robert Durst-style confession. Yes, Carabo was dead, and yes, he had removed her body from the apartment, but... He didn't kill her. He just panicked when she died and decided to hide her body. So let's go over what Sandile said happened. Sandile said that on Friday the 28th, he and Karabu were at his apartment after being out the night before. They got into an argument, and around 6 p.m., he left for a meeting. 
When he returned, he said he found Carabo dead on the floor, bleeding from the neck, and that there was a knife at the scene. He first said he suspected someone else had killed Carabo, but then changed it to she had taken her own life. He said she had even attempted suicide before with sleeping pills, and a security guard at the building even witnessed it. But with the domestic violence charge against him, Sandile panicked, sure that no one was going to believe him that this was suicide. So rather than call for help or alert building security, he went about the process of hiding her body. Sandile put her in the wheelie bin and took it down to his car. It was late enough at night that he wasn't running a huge risk of bumping into too many people in the parking garage wondering what he was doing. He then drove Carabo's body, which was in his trunk, out to his mother's house. But Sandile insisted his parents knew nothing about what happened. He just went there to take a tire and some pool acid from the house. Then he went to a gas station to get fuel. Sandile took Carabo's body out to a field, put the tire around her neck, doused her in pool chemicals and gasoline, and lit her body on fire. All of that to cover up for her death, which he absolutely 100% was not responsible for. That was his story. After Sandile's confession, an officer went to Lolo, who was waiting at the station, to find out what was going on. When the officer came into the room, everyone else left. So Lolo said she knew that she did not want to hear what was coming next. And that's when she was told Caraba was dead, and she just remembers screaming at that point. Sandile did take the police to where he had left Carabo's body. It was in a field where it appears people used to dump trash. This field was about 20 minutes from his apartment and near his parents' home. Except when Sandile and the police got to the field, there was no body. What was left was some scorched ground as evidence a fire happened there but the body was not there. As it turned out, Carabo's body had already been discovered. A passerby found it shortly after Sandile had left it there. Due to the extent of the burning on the top half of her body, the man passing by didn't even realize he was looking at a human body. And there was very little hope of recognizing who this person was before Sandile told his story. DNA testing had to be used to prove that the Jane Doe was Carabo Moquena. And now that we've covered Sandile's statement, let's go into the massive plot holes. First, his statement that Carabo had attempted suicide before as witnessed by a security guard. It never happened. The only security guard Sandile ever sought assistance from was a man named Lucky. He said that he helped Sandile get into his apartment when he locked his keycard inside, and this was about six weeks before the murder, so before Carabo's birthday, when she was still living there. 
Lucky said that when Sandile said he was locked out, he mentioned that his girlfriend was in the apartment and he didn't know what was going on because she wasn't answering the door. When they used the master keycard to enter the apartment, they both found Carabo fast asleep. Sandile woke her up and asked her what happened, and she apologized and just said she was sleeping. And she just hadn't heard him trying to get into the apartment. According to Lucky, Carabo was not in any distress. Sandile didn't seem alarmed. And there were no pill bottles laying around like Sandile had told the police. A search of the security logbooks also makes no mention of a guard dealing with an overdose, intentional or otherwise. And that was the sort of thing that would have been documented. The second major issue was the timeline. The security footage did show that Sandile left his apartment around 6.22 p.m., but he did not go to a meeting. He actually went back inside at 6.26. Essentially, all Sandile did was step out for four minutes. And that's the very tiny window he wanted the police to believe Carabo decided to, out of nowhere, take her life. The third issue was that this wasn't the only story he told. Sandile, after admitting he knew what happened to Carabo, first claimed that someone else had killed her. Clearly, this story fell apart immediately because this is a secure building. This killer would have had to manage to completely circumvent the building's security system, security guards, and security cameras. It was after this story didn't land that Sandile changed it to being a suicide. And if you believe one of the officers who talked with Sandile, he told an even more unusual story. Sandile completely denies that he ever said this, and there apparently was just the one officer there when he said it. So we have no way to prove what was or was not said. But this maybe confession had to do with a ritual killing. The officer said that Sandile claimed Carabo had introduced him to a practice where they made a blood covenant. The purpose of the ritual was to boost his business. The only thing was that this ritual bound them together. So if they ever split up, one of them would have to die to break it, or they would have the opposite of good fortune and Sandili's business would fail. Sandili said Karabu knew what had to happen, and she took her own life in order to break their connection. Sandile then used her blood to finish breaking the spell or curse and then disposed of her body. The evidence used to support this idea had to do with the burning of Karabo's upper body. It takes a lot to destroy a body, including organs, especially to the point where they are literally nothing and no longer there. Reportedly, 60% of Carabo's internal organs were missing, including her heart. 
I will admit that I have the most limited knowledge of ritual killings that you could possibly have. I would wager that anything I even think I know is really just going to be outdated stereotypes. I was a child during Satanic Panic, so that's kind of my unfortunate framework. But from what has been said by others who do know about this, the taking of organs, in particular the heart, is common in these types of ritual killings. The officer said that when it came time for Sandile to write down his confession that included the ritual aspect, he switched stories. He then denied killing Carabo, he denied the ritual, he denied the spell that bound them, and he went with the suicide story. And because his defense was that Carabo had taken her life, they had to show that, one, she was depressed enough to do that, and two, why she would be depressed. Sandile painted a version of Carabo and her life that her friends and family were shocked to hear. He claimed a previous boyfriend had raped and abused her. He accused Carabo's father of having abused her as a child and a young adult, and he said Carabo was temperamental and mentally unstable. He painted her as being addicted to the high life. Further, Sandile denied being the abusive one in the relationship. He said it was Carabo. She would become violent when she was angry. He said her erratic behavior included crashing his car and using his credit cards without permission. This was Sandile's story, so you would expect a parade of witnesses testifying about Carabo's unstable moods and her outrageous behavior, if this was going to be his defense. But at trial, we did not get that. On the other hand, the prosecution had photographs taken of Carabo showing the abuse at Sandili's hands, and those photographs spoke very loudly. After Sandili's arrest, the case got national and international attention. It drew eyes and ears to the stories of domestic violence and gender-based violence in South Africa. The statistics were startling, and Carabo's case was the first time many were hearing them. In 2016, a woman in South Africa was killed every four hours. More than half were killed by their intimate partner. South Africa's rate of female homicide is nearly four times the global rate. And whenever media and social media conversations turn toward domestic violence, we hear some victim blaming. Sometimes the term victim blaming is overused. It's starting to lose some of its meaning and its nuance, but you're really not going to find a more clear-cut example than what happened in this case. Susan Shabangu, who was the head of the Department of Women in the South African government, said Karabo was weak, and that is why she was abused. She immediately faced a backlash for victim-blaming, though she was not the only person using this language. She did later clarify that she used the wrong word. What she should have said, what she meant to say, was vulnerable, not 
week. She went on to say that the government's attempts to deal with South Africa's gender-based violence was focused heavily on telling women to leave abusive relationships. There was not enough responsibility being placed onto the abusers to not use women as, in her words, punching bags. So basically, she's saying she meant the opposite of what she had said. But most people who were blaming Carabo for going out that night with Sandile didn't mean the opposite. They really were blaming her. At Carabo's funeral, one of the speakers brought up how abuse is about breaking someone down emotionally to control them. And Carabo had withstood that. Even though she was going out with Sandile again, she wasn't moving back in with him. She was taking time to make him prove he was worthy of a second, third, fourth, whatever chance. The thing is, Karabu had withstood the abuse. Sandile was not breaking her down. He was not getting her to comply with him through fear and violence, and he could not handle that lack of control over her. And he chose to kill her. It was Karabu's strength he feared, not a weakness he exploited. And while the media, mainstream and social, We're discussing the case in the greater context of gender-based violence in South Africa. Sandile still had to go to trial. He was facing charges for premeditated murder, defeating the ends of justice, and assault with the intent to do grievous bodily harm. And that last charge stems from the assault that occurred on Carabo's birthday. Defeating the ends of justice is also known as perverting the course of justice or obstructing justice depending on country and jurisdiction. This charge was related to trying to hide Carabo's body, trying to obscure her identity, and getting rid of evidence. The trial occurred in April 2018. Sandile side did not call any witnesses, but rather presented their case through cross-examination. For instance, to get in evidence of Carabo's father being allegedly abusive, they questioned her sister about why Carabo didn't tell her father about the abuse from Sandile when she did tell her mother and her siblings. Was she afraid of her father? But her sister replied that there were reasons that made more sense, like how Carabo wanted to protect Sandile. Also, Carabo may not have been comfortable discussing her intimate relationships with her father. Not because she was afraid of him, but just it wasn't the type of relationship they had. She just simply preferred talking to her mom and her sister about that kind of thing. In their closing statement, the defense said that the prosecution had failed to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, which is language I often use on the show. It's pretty much the point of any defense case. I could leave it out and you can all just assume the defense said it. But normally, I also say that the defense told this to a jury, which is not something that I can say this week. There was no jury. South Africa got rid of juries over 50 years ago. 
judges will appoint legal assessors to aid them in evaluating the case. So I'm not saying that judges decide everything without any help, but they don't use a jury. The judge in this case, Pete Johnson, found Sandile Manso guilty on all charges. He said that it just didn't make sense that Sandile didn't call for help if Carabo had taken her own life. When faced with the suicide of a loved one, the last thing on anyone's mind should have been to get away with something. It should have been to call for help. He said the way Sandile went about trying to get away with the crime was deceptive, and he posed a threat to society. After the guilty verdicts, both sides prepared for sentencing. The prosecution, of course, wanted the maximum. Sandile had not testified in his trial, but he did testify at sentencing. He said he was sorry for what he did to Carabo's body, but he continued to deny that he killed her. He claimed he came into her life when things were already bad for her. He was trying to build her up and make her a better person. As Sandile said to the media, he was just the last one there when Carabo collapsed. Sandile was seeing his story through to the bitter end. Sandile's ex-girlfriend, the mother of one of his children, testified that he was a good man and a good father, and she wanted her daughter to continue having her father in her life. This was presented as a mitigating factor. However, the judge was not that impressed with it. He looked at Sandile's refusal to take responsibility for what he did, as well as the pain his accusations of abuse at Carabo's father had caused the family. And then he sentenced Sandile to 32 years in prison. Sandile's attorney, Victor Simelain, told the press that the sentence was far too harsh. I'm going to go ahead and read his quote to you. He said, quote, You would expect sentences of this nature for people who go out there with firearms, robbing banks, not a matter which flowed from a love affair. End quote. He seriously said that robbing a bank at gunpoint, is worse than murdering your girlfriend, putting her body somewhere people dump trash, and then setting her body on fire. When advocates in South Africa call for change to the attitudes around gender-based violence, this is exactly what they're talking about. And to that end, Carabo's family has started the Carabo Moquena Foundation to advocate against violence to women and children. Their hope is to continue Carabo's dream of helping others. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crime Lines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crime Lines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. 
And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for.